1969, man first walked on the moon, and we saw these images. Of course, they needed to be beamed to the Earth from the moon, but at that time, the United States was not facing the moon. So what happened? Well, this telescope collected the signal. It is called the Parkes Radio Telescope, and it's in New South Wales, Australia. And here's me beside it a few weeks ago. The telescope is huge, but small by the standards of some of the larger telescopes around today. Affectionately, in Australia, it is known as The Dish, in part because of this movie which was made in the year 2000. It's worth watching. It's an Australian comedy classic by some of our most prominent comedians, and it's broadly historically accurate. What is even less known than the fact this dish was used to collect those signals coming from the moon was that seven years earlier, just after it was constructed, the dish found that a certain radio source, which had already been designated 3C273, it was pinpointed by the Parkes radio telescope dish when the moon passed in front of the source. This was in 1962 and allowed the Parkes astronomers to inform other astronomers at Mount Palomar to use their 200-inch telescope to look for an optical counterpart. This happens a lot in astronomy. People with radio telescopes notice something strange using radio waves and they communicate with the people who operate other kinds of telescope, the ones you think of when you think telescope, like this or this, and then the optical astronomers are able to more closely pinpoint the object. The thing about radio waves is that they have long wavelengths, and long wavelengths means low resolution, which also means it's harder to tell exactly on the sky where the signal is coming from. This is why that moon oculation, as we call it, oculation of the object behind the moon, was needed. That process allows you to pinpoint the position of the radio object a little more precisely. If you notice the radio waves disappear just as the moon passes a certain region of the sky, then you can more precisely determine where in the sky those radio waves are coming from. And that then helps astronomers who use the optical telescopes to move their telescopes to exactly where they need to be to see the object in the regular wavelengths that human vision uses. Anyways, when they did this with the 3C273 object, they saw a faint star and a wispy cloud of material near the object the spectra was analysed by astronomer Martin Schmidt and his collaborators, but it was Schmidt who first suggested this object had a large redshift. But before we get to him, let's go back to Parkes in 1972. When the moon was passing in front of the object in 1962, the radio telescope had to be pointed close to the horizon. The director of the telescope, uh, John Bolton, was worried about being able to see the object in the radio band and so dug a trench around the telescope so the dish could dip below ground level. Not only that, but he asked for local radio stations to be switched off during the observations. This was the same John Bolton who, 13 years earlier in 1949, suggested that some radio sources detected in the sky could be from outside the galaxy. Quite the claim at the time. No doubt in part this was the motivation for going to some quite extraordinary lengths to ensure the radio telescope in Australia would not miss this opportunity to further constrain some properties of this radio object that the moon was passing in front of. By the way, Sam Neill's character in the movie The Dish is based on John Bolton. In 1960 and 61, there were already astronomers reporting the existence of so-called radio stars. These were stars that were quite unusual in putting out a lot of radio waves but also, they had unusual spectra. This is curious because, of course, later we would learn they were indeed from outside the galaxy. 
But who cares that they called them radio stars? Well, the significance for, let's say, the philosophy of science is that that stars need to be within about 120,000 light years of where we are. In fact, that is the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy. But quasars are typically more than 10 billion light years away. Some are much more than this which means astronomers just a few decades ago were underestimating their distance by a factor of more than 150,000. We should keep this sort of thing in mind. The history of science is a history of correcting some rather large errors in our initial guesses, even in our quantitative sciences. Also, and this is key, the evidence was there in the spectra in these early observations, namely The astronomers had the spectra. The astronomers could easily, if they had the right knowledge, have interpreted the spectra they saw as being redshifted. And some later on did indeed claim, as I'll come to soon, that they did interpret it this way, but were unwilling to go out on a limb for fear of ridicule. An issue of Sky and Telescope in 1961, that's the magazine for astronomers, the popular magazine, even reported that there is a remote possibility that... One of these objects, not 3C273, but 3C48, may be a distant galaxy of stars. But there is general agreement among the astronomers concerned that it is a relatively nearby star with most peculiar properties. Now before I get to the nature of and the physics of quasars, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the history, namely, who could be credited with actually discovering quasars? As we'll see, the answer to that question is not very simple. And for all intents and purposes in science, it's entirely unimportant as well. But some of us, myself included, like to trace the history of science just to see what kind of fits and starts we've had along the way to the knowledge that we've got now. What kind of errors and missteps have been made in the past? Is it possible that we won't make that error in the future? Who knows? Probably not, but it might at least broaden our way of thinking about certain areas of science, in physics, for example, where we rule out certain observations as not possibly being able to indicate what, in fact, they do indicate. Anyways, in terms of the history, of course, just as in history anywhere else, you can emphasise and de-emphasise certain things, and that can colour what you think is the answer to a simple question, a seemingly simple question like, who discovered the first quasar? Now, in this case, we have the astronomer John Bolton, who suggested that some objects might be outside the galaxy, namely these quasars. Does he deserve the credit, or is it Martin Schmidt who first looked at the spectra from 3C273 and determined that it had a very large redshift, which is suggestive of the fact that it might be outside of the galaxy? Or was it Hongyi Chu of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies who coined the term quasar in a May 1964 article for Physics Today? In Biology, isn't that how things work? If you name something, then you get the credit for having discovered it. Now, I tend to think it might have been both Bolton, who seemed to be convinced the object was outside of the galaxy, and therefore went to these extraordinary lengths with his radio telescope in Australia to gather the evidence that was needed, which then led Schmidt to being able to have the spectra and interpret the spectra as, in fact, having a higher redshift, which was the clincher for how far away this object was and later on how bright it was. 
But even all of this story is a little bit dubious because there are many others who contributed to the work of both Bolton and Schmidt. And lots of ideas were being thrown around, apparently in late night discussions. And in Schmidt's case, certainly at something like a party of astronomers where shots of alcohol were being consumed late at night. So who knows what was said and where the conjectures came from. Whatever the case, there is a history of the discovery of quasars, a paper by K.I. Kellerman from the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Charlottesville, which runs for 14 pages, and then an additional three pages, which is a list of all the references that he used. So it's a comprehensive account, and if you're interested in more of this, of course, I've put the link to that paper in the description. Now, a, a part of this history that is interesting is that quasars seem to have absolutely been discovered in 1963. By who exactly is a matter of debate. But in 1963, four very important papers, scientific papers, were published at that time, all converging on the nature of quasars. And in the history of quasars document that I was talking about, there's a paragraph about this period. And it's worth reading verbatim because, well, it's interesting to me. And it says, and I'll quote, The four now classic papers by Hazard et al., 1963, Schmidt, 1963, Oakey, 1963, and Greenstein and Matthews, 1963, were published as consecutive papers in the March 16, 1963, issue of Nature. Whether by error or intentionally, Hazard's name appeared in Nature with a CSIRO radiophysics laboratory affiliation, although Hazard was affiliated with the University of Sydney. Relations between the University of Sydney and the Radiophysics Laboratory were at the time already strained, and this incident further exacerbated the existing tensions. Hazard had been invited by John Bolton, Taffy Bowen, and Joe Pawsey to use the Parkes telescope to observe the upcoming occultation. As a non-staff member, Hazard was not familiar with the operation of the telescope nor the receivers, and so following standard practice for non-radiophysics observers, John Shimmins and Brian McKee were added to the observing team to provide telescope and receiver support respectively, Bolton 1990. Characteristically, Bolton declined to put his name on the paper, claiming that he was just doing his job as director. Haynes and Haynes, 1993, attribute the error to an unintentional mistake on the part of the journal due to the change from a letter format as submitted to an article format as published although the manuscript submitted by the Radio Physics Publications Office has the word DELETE handwritten next to Hazard's University of Sydney address. End quote. Now, the CSIRO is Australia's Commonwealth Science and Industry Research Organisation. It is our premier government-funded research body for science. And so the fact that that institution was having an argument or didn't like the University of Sydney at the time is a matter of historical interest. <laughs> Whatever the case, the message here is that despite sociological effects, the truth wins out. Errors do indeed get corrected in science. Whatever the politics is, that is not the main driver of science or of discoveries in science. The science makes its way regardless. And all the Coonian sociological musings have very little impact, ultimately upon what we do discover. It may have an effect on the history of science and who gets credit, but the fact is, quasars are there, and we know about them, despite Sydney University fighting with the government science agency, and there apparently being some jealousy around Bolton or some such. Science makes progress anyway. Objective progress. 
This is a point David Deutsch makes in his critique of Kuhn in The Fabric of Reality. Sociology is not a primary driver of scientific discoveries. Not at all. Error correction is. The identification of problems are. And the creation of their solutions are. As this example of Quasars shows... So that's the history, except for one more remark. These discoveries I will talk about were all really sparked in England and Australia. And one may well ask, why? Well, it seems to be a combination of two things. First, the English had, broadly speaking, the best radio technology, because this was just after World War II, and it was military technology that was first used, or a form of military technology that was first used to detect objects from the sky. As a result, they were able to begin doing radio astronomy better and earlier than most others. Although, even before this, there was Carl Jansky, who was an American astronomer, after which the unit, the Jansky, is named the Jansky unit. Carl Jansky is probably the most famous radio astronomer, because he was one of the first. And the Jansky is, roughly speaking, a unit of radio wave intensity. So how strong the signal is. You measure it in Janskys. And Jansky... Uh, was interested in pointing radio telescopes or his radio telescope at the Milky Way and realised that it's putting out, the the centre of the Milky Way is putting out radio waves. Anyway, this explains why England was good at radio astronomy. They had lots of the early military technology. But why was Australia so good? Australia is so good because the place is empty. It is quiet. If you want to do astronomy, you need somewhere away from noise. Many people think of light pollution when you're looking at the sky, but there's also, of course, radio pollution. So if there are too many radio stations or if there are otherwise any other sources of radiation around you, then this is going to interfere with the radio signal. So trying to stick a radio telescope, a really good radio telescope, somewhere near Los Angeles or London is much harder to do than to go way out in the middle of Australia somewhere. And in fact, we're building some of the largest radio telescopes in the world here in Western Australia at the moment as well. And Parkes is quite a long way, the Parkes radio telescope is quite a long way from any built-up area. But let's now move on to some more of the science. And all of this is essentially motivated by remarks I made in my Nexus video, where I said our understanding of what a quasar really is is, as I described, a black hole consuming stars. And as a consequence, the accretion disk, which is the disk of material that is falling into the black hole, is rotating so quickly that it creates magnetic fields. The reason it creates magnetic fields is because this gas that is spiraling into the black hole is ionized, ionized gas. Ionized gas means you have an electrical current of a kind. An ion is a charged particle. So lots of them moving together constitute an electric current. And all the way back in the 1800s, we had people like Michael Faraday explaining how moving charges, like electrons, or in this case ions, can generate magnetic fields. These magnetic fields that are generated cause the production of jets of material that head in all directions, but in in our case, towards the Earth, which we can see, which we can detect. So in that Nexus video, I presume to explain what we know of quasars in an approximately two-minute clip. Of course, that would be a very crude, low-resolution explanation. And so in part, what I said was, the jets head in all directions, but in our case, towards the Earth. Now, there's ambiguity in this. This is a kind of sloppy way of explaining what's going on. 
What I meant there, my intention was, that we are not privileged. If you were to take a thousand quasars at random from a God's eye view of the universe, you would notice the jets oriented in all possible directions. Some tiny portion of them are pointed right towards the Earth, and these are the ones that we can see. We are in the beam, so to speak. Now, this is only partially correct, and there's an important way in which it's incorrect that the overwhelming majority of quasars are not ones where we're directly in the beam. And as we'll come to, these, in fact, have a different name. We can still call them quasars, for reasons that I'll come to, but generally they, they get the name blazars. That's where we are head-on into the beam. But in fact, the mechanism whereby we can see quasars is generally somewhat more complicated than this. And I'll come to this. But anyway, this is the motivation for today's video. And I'm using a number of sources for this, not least of which is this book, which is titled An Introduction to Modern Astrophysics by Carolyn Ostley, affectionately called Bob by the people that I went to university with. Bob standing for Big Orange Book. Um, it runs for something close to 1,300 and something pages. And the frustrating thing for us as students, I recall, was a running joke of sorts, which was that every time we were expected to get a new text, even at the graduate level, it was titled something like an introduction to something or other. And so that's an introduction to modern astrophysics. It didn't matter how many years we studied or how senior we became, we were always just at the introductory level. And we always wondered, when were we going to ever move beyond an introduction to? Presumably after we did a PhD, which I never did. And incidentally, you can get texts called advanced astrophysics. A well-known one is this one, uh, Neb Durek's Advanced Astrophysics, which is basically just a lot more physics than it is astronomy, but the content isn't necessarily any more complicated than the one that I've got here. In fact, in fact, I find the explanations in the one that I have far better than the ones that are in this uh, advanced astrophysics one. I think in a lot of cases these titles come down to marketing more than anything else. What our best theories now tell us. Lots of galaxies are what are known as active galaxies, which just means galaxies that are brighter than normal if you observe them using radio telescopes. Among the first of these noticed were noticed by an astronomer, Carl Seyfert, and they are called Seyfert galaxies, or Seyfert galaxies, even to this day. Some of these galaxies also emit a lot of X-rays. Seyferts, along with quasars, are all now classed as AGNs, which is the acronym for Active Galactic Nuclei, because we know they are all part of the same kind of thing. Basically, the nuclei, or the centre of the galaxies, are the active parts, the energetic parts, the particularly bright parts, that are sending out the radiation that we can then detect. An interesting thing here is the taxonomy of these objects, because they were not all originally known to be the same, but now we do kind of know that they are the same thing. The classic kind of AGN is pretty much encapsulated by the first one that was discovered, Cygnus A, shown here. It's moving at about 16,600 kilometres a second away from us. That's quite fast. And we've calculated its luminosity to be 4.8 times 10 to the power of 37 watts in the radio band alone. This is several million times brighter than a normal galaxy and is about three times more energy than the Milky Way puts out across all of its wavelengths, which is absolutely astonishing because, well, radio waves are the least energetic of all of the wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation. 
Now, at the centre of this image of Cygnus A, that rather little dot, is a whole galaxy. It's a galaxy, according to Bob, the Big Orange Book, a CD galaxy, which is a giant elliptical galaxy. Or it could be a type E galaxy if I go looking on the internet at other sources. It depends on who I consult about this. In any case, it's huge, which means those lobes are even more stupendously large. And it is those lobes of gas that are illuminated by the jet and what makes the galaxy so bright. Now, my textbook here says that a quasar's radio emission may come from either radio lobes or from the central source in its core. Quasars are so far away that in optical images, most appear as overwhelmingly bright, star-like nuclei surrounded by faint fuzzy halos. In some cases, a fuzzy halo can be resolved into a faint parent galaxy. To be visible from such great distances, quasars must be exceptionally powerful. Now, just a note on the terminology, quasar. Today, the term quasar has come to be used almost universally for both things that put out a lot of radio waves, called QSRs, which is quasi-stellar radio sources, and much quieter QSOs, which are quasi-stellar objects. And so this, this, a bit of, this bit of terminology is rather confusing. As a result, it's common to encounter the descriptions radio-loud quasars and radio-quiet quasars. However, it is sometimes the case that QSO is used as an abbreviation for quasar. The terminology, as I said, can be confusing in the literature, and indeed it's contradictory. To say that a particular quasar is radio-quiet is equivalent to saying that we are discussing radio-quiet quasi-stellar radio sources based on the original definition of what a quasar is. And so as time went on after this first one was discovered, many others were discovered that were similar but which had important differences. And they all were extremely bright and, aside from the radio quiet ones, putting out a lot of energy in the radio part of the spectrum. They had high redshifts, but they could be seen like stars which is rather unusual because if they're on the other side of the universe, they must be putting out a heck of a lot of energy. And no one could really figure out what the source of this energy was. After all, if they were like a star, that would mean they're putting out the energy in all directions evenly, which is a mystery because no such physical process would have enabled them to put out quite so much energy in such a small volume of space. They were putting out more energy than many, many galaxies. Uh, and yet they appeared to be like a star. Could they have been a star? That seemed to be physically impossible. Whatever the case, people started to develop a, started to develop a taxonomy, a way of naming these things. And so we have these kinds here. And this table here is from the textbook that I use. So we've got Seifert galaxies, we've got quasars, radio galaxies. Blazars. Blazars are these things where, as we will see, uh, the jet that illuminates the lobes is pointed directly at us, at least for a short time. Now, what happened much later was the creative theory that, in fact, all of these objects were essentially the same kind of thing. They were a black hole with an accretion disk, and the accretion disk caused the production, because it was spinning so rapidly, in the way that I described in that other episode that I did. The 
accreted material spinning so rapidly that it ionizes the gas. And this ionized gas constitutes an electric current. And the electric current generates a magnetic field, and the magnetic field can cause synchrotron radiation. The synchrotron radiation, rather like the kind of radiation that comes out of a particle accelerator, generates these jets of material. And the jets of material go streaming out at right angles from the disk of material. Eventually, that jet of material encounters the interstellar medium. So other bits of gas, very diffuse gas, but bits of gas that are out there, and slow down and eventually... Uh, collect as huge clouds of gas. And so where did these huge lobes come from? Well, that's just the material coming out of the center via those jets. And so then the jet is colliding in with remnants of itself. And those remnants are being illuminated by the new stuff that's colliding into it. And that causes the extremely bright light that is coming from these things. Now, the way in which we say this is a unified model is that all of them are exactly the same thing. The difference is, the major difference is, the orientation between our vantage point here on Earth and the object. So if the object is side onto us, we might call it a quasar. But if, it, if we're in the beam, we're a blazer. And various other factors like the accretion rate, you know, how quickly the black hole at the center is consuming stars, has an effect on whether or not it's called a Seifert galaxy, a radio galaxy, a quasar, or a blazar. But, as the text has already said, the light that is coming from the quasar, in most cases, is indeed coming from the brightness of the lobes. In some cases, it's also from the central disk as well. And in some cases, it's from us being the direct path of the jet. And the jet might itself be moving around. It might be processing in a certain sense, and so that is why a lot of these blazars are particularly variable in their brightness. Sometimes we're in the path of the jet, and sometimes we're not, as the jet moves backwards and forwards, uh, such that we can either see it very clearly and brightly, or not. Now, it's worth going over a little bit more detail about how these jets are generated. So the generation of jets, according to my text, which says, quote, the radio lobes are produced by jets of charged particles ejected from the central nucleus of the active galactic nuclei at relativistic speeds. These particles are accelerated away from the nucleus in two opposite directions, powered by the energy of accretion and or by the extraction of rotational kinetic energy from the black hole. The jet must be electrically neutral overall, but it is not clear whether the ejected material consists of electrons and ions or an electron-positron plasma, the latter being less massive, would be more easily accelerated. The disk's magnetic field is coupled, or frozen in, to this flow of charged particles. The resulting magnetic torques may remove angular momentum from the disk, which would allow the accreting material to move inward through the disk. The incredible narrowness and straightness of some jets means that a collimating process must be at work very near the central engine powering the jet. A thick, hot accretion disk around the black hole could provide natural collimation by funneling the outflowing particles. Because the accreting material retains some angular momentum as it spirals inward through the disk, it will tend to pile up at the smallest orbit that is compatible with its angular momentum. Inside this centrifugal barrier, there may be a relatively empty cavity that can act as a nozzle, directing the accreting gases outward along the walls of the cavity. However, producing highly relativistic jets, as frequently observed, appear to be appears to be difficult to accomplish with this nozzle mechanism. 
Now, as the jet of material travels outwards, its energy primarily resides in the kinetic energy of its particles. However, the jet encounters resistance as it penetrates the interstellar medium within the host galaxy and the intergalactic medium beyond. As a result, the material at the head of the jet is slowed and a shock front forms there. The accumulation and deceleration of the particles at the shock front causes the directed energy of the jet to become disordered as the particles splash back to form a large lobe in which the energy may be shared equally by the kinetic and magnetic energy. The problem of calculating the motion of a jet through the intergalactic medium is so complicated that extensive numerical simulations are required to model the process. The motion of the charged particles and the magnetic fields within the lobes of radio loud objects contain an enormous amount of energy. For Cygnus A, the energy of each lobe is estimated to be approximately 10 to the power of 53 to 10 to the power of 54 joules, equivalent to the energy liberated by 10 to the power of 7 supernovae. Okay, end quote for the textbook there. And so this is why David Deutsch makes that wonderful quip in his TED talk about it's a bit difficult to explain exactly what it would be like in one of those jets. It would be a bit like experiencing a supernova explosion, but at point-blank range and for millions of years at a time. And so that's where we get it there. So a single jet there has the energy liberated by 10 to the power of 7 supernovae, which is quite remarkable. And so the thing about quasars is they are luminous. They're really bright. This means that they can be seen at distances much greater than other objects like stars or regular galaxies. And it's this quality of being so luminous and so much easier to detect at large distances that makes them important probes, so we say, in astronomy, of the early universe. If a quasar is observed at a redshift of 2.0, this means the age of the universe is only about 3.5 billion years at the time when we're observing the quasar, or a quarter of what it is now. And of course, because the quasars become more numerous the more distant that you look, they're a good record of how the universe is evolving over time. The ones that are closest to us are behaving in a certain way, perhaps having a redshift or are moving with space at a certain velocity, and others that are much further away are moving with a different velocity. And this, of course, is what led to the discovery of dark energy, this accelerating expansion of the universe by looking at these very distant quasars. Now, today, the most distant quasars that are out there have a redshift of more than seven. According to Wikipedia, at the moment, the most distant quasar yet seen lies 29.36 billion light years away from Earth. As it says there, these distances are much larger than the distance light could travel in the universe's 13.8 billion year history because space itself has also been expanding. So this one quasar that's mentioned there, it's got a funky name J1342 plus 0928. It's got a redshift of 7.54, which, which is less than a billion years, well less than a billion years after the Big Bang. So this is looking back very close to the origin of the universe. The universe was indeed much, much smaller back then. Now... If you look up on the internet again, if you look, if you Google, you'll find that the brightest quasar, the apparently brightest quasar, so the apparent magnitude, the apparent brightness, is indeed 37273, which is the one I've been talking about, the first one ever discovered. And if you know where to look, apparently a medium-sized amateur telescope will be able to resolve that. It'll look just like a star. It'll be pretty boring to look at, in fact. But hey, you could say you're observing a quasar. 
But this is not the most powerful quasar, of course. This is just the one that happens to be closest to us, easiest to see, and so therefore was the first to be discovered. And any amateur astronomer with a good enough bit of equipment can indeed see it. The most powerful quasar known as of 2021, apparently, is something that's got a funky name, which I won't uh, read out. It's just a long list of letters. It doesn't have a popular name. Uh, you can Google this, of course. But its luminosity is 2.66 times 10 to the power of 41 watts, which is something of the order of 10,000 times more than the other quasars that I've mentioned here, such as 373, that first one. So it's even brighter than those ones. And according to one of the more prestigious uh, journals, the Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, the black hole associated with that quasar is 34 billion solar masses. <laughs> These numbers are just uh, astonishing. So the black hole alone is 34 billion times the mass of the sun. And so it's producing this vast amount of energy. So that's as of today, the most powerful one that we can see. And clicking a few more links, I find that Phil Plate, who is the bad astronomer, he's written an article, and I'll just take it on face value, where he says that this new quasar found, I think it was found back in 2018, the brightest one, the most, or rather the most powerful one, the most luminous one, with the 34 billion solar mass black hole at the centre, apparently in order to do the maths probably, it must be eating a star a day. A star a day, not a star a year, as most other quasars apparently do. Now, this to me raises questions about something called the Eddington limit, and and this this um this Eddington limit is, you know, it, well, it, it's just a consequence of the laws of physics that you can't have more luminosity than this, given how uh, quickly things can fall into a black hole under gravity, and then heat up and thus cause the brightness that you can see. But there could be other physics going on here that we aren't aware of, of course. Okay, so that's where I'll end this episode for today. Just to point out, I had some misconceptions in that original Nexus video there. The misconceptions being about how the light reaches us from a quasar. Are we directly in the beam? Generally not. In some cases we are, but usually we call these things blazars or something else more exotic. There's black objects as well for what it's worth. But usually what we're seeing is the jets of material are in fact perpendicular to us. They're not necessarily being pointed straight at us. They can be pointed at some sort of angle towards us. Very rarely, as I say, directly towards us. But in most cases, they're not oriented that way. And instead are going perpendicular to where we are. And they're then illuminating these big lobes, these, these big gas clouds. And we can see the big gas clouds. And because they're so huge, that's why they're so bright, so luminous, and we can detect them here on Earth. And the process, the exotic processes that are going on there are producing the radio waves. And those exotic processes are also causing the illumination of these large lobes, which are then the things that we can detect here from the other side of the universe to where it's all going on. And all of this explanation, as I like to link things back to the way in which knowledge is constructed and what we've talked about throughout TalkCast, is the idea of self-similarity. That over time, our understanding of these quasars becomes ever better, and the models of these things in our minds come to more closely resemble the 
actual physics that's going on there on the other side of the universe, that one structure resembles the other over time. And this is the story of people. For more on that, see my episode called The Nexus. Until next time, bye-bye.